Next month, we'll see the 100th anniversary of the killing of a Royal Irish Constabulary Officer, District Inspector Percival Lee Wilson. You may know the name because Wilson, along with his wife, Mary, are forever associated with the Caravaggio painting, The Taking of Christ, which hangs in the National Gallery. That long-lost masterpiece was identified in the Jesuit Hall in Dublin in 1990. Mary Lee Wilson had donated the painting to the Order in the 1930s in gratitude for their support following the shooting of her husband. I'm joined now by radio and theatre producer Ethna Hand, who's researched the lives of Percival and Mary Lee Wilson and also that uh, rediscovered Caravaggio painting. Ethna, you're very welcome to the History Show. Now, we have to mention, first of all, that you have a personal connection to this episode in Irish history through your grandfather, who was the famous Liam Tobin, the deputy director of intelligence to uh, Michael Collins. Tell us about that connection. Yes, Liam Tobin was my mother's father and he would have died in 1963, but back in 1920 and on the date of June the 15th, 1920, he and Frank Thornton travelled down from Dublin to Gorey and they were joined there by local brigade people and they... They waited around, actually, for two or three days in order to do what they came to do, which was to assassinate Percival Lee Wilson. And I would have not really known that when I was growing up because we didn't think that our grandfather, we knew he was the Deputy Director of Intelligence and that he was Michael Collins' right-hand man and all those lovely things. And he was only in his 20s, so it was very much part of his early days, which he then never spoke about again. But we knew that he had been involved, but not that he ever pulled a trigger and certainly when we were kids, we were brought in to see his gun in the National Museum. And it was a pretty kind of ladylike looking gun, I thought. And But we were very clear that this was not a used item. It was just something that they all had to carry. But of course we were wrong. And uh, you find out these things as you get older and wiser. And when you realise that actually, you know, again, because he never spoke about it, maybe I don't know if he was involved in other assassinations. He was certainly involved in ordering assassinations. Um, but in this case, yes, there was a direct connection between him and the killing of Percival Lee Wilson in Gorey in 1920. Now, he was there for a specific purpose, also there on the orders of Michael Collins with Frank Thornton, who would have been one of the, the leading members of Collins's squad. But he, to some extent, and Thornton and Collins, they were settling an old score from 1916. What had, what had Percival Lee Wilson done in 1916? Well, this is where it really was a case of an RIC officer who was had a particularly bad night and Percival Lee Wilson's fate was kind of sealed in some ways by a night in the Rotunda Gardens, which was the area at the end of 1916. The area around the Rotunda Hospital was used to house or to hold the prisoners, of whom there were many. And Percival Lee Wilson was one of the people who was on guard that night as such. And he he kind of excelled in the sense that his name crops up on many, many different people's witness statements from that night. His mental state was probably not very good at the time because he was based in Ashburn and that would have been a tricky place because during the week he had certainly been witness to a lot of funerals after the uh, rebel forces had killed eight of the RIC officers in Ashburn. But whatever the reasons, he ended up being in Dublin that night and the descriptions vary from, you know, this man who was kind of didn't seem in control of himself, wearing a smoking cap with fancy tassels, holding up a match to the prisoners' faces, saying, come and look at the animals. 
He was really verbally and physically offensive, both uh, in t- from Sean McEntee's report, he was saying mostly very offensive to Ned Daly and Tom Clark. He strip-searched Tom Clark in a kind of a sadistic way, and uh, there's a few references to that. And Liam Tobin, who was 21 at that stage and was there in the garden that night, he wrote in his account, I looked at him and I registered a vow to myself that I would deal with him at some time in the future. Now, Percival Lee Wilson was somebody of a military background, but his military career certainly appears to have been very short. Well, yes, this is where I was interested then. I was trying to working on this a few years ago to try and look at it as a script. And I thought, well, I needed to, to learn more about Percival. And there was no real information about him, about what happened when he went to the war, as in when he went to the front, because he did. He signed up and he ended up in France in, in 1917. So after his ignominious day or night, which I'm sure he didn't think was too bad, he ended up going to the front. And I went over to London to the military history archives and a very kind of very sad, small folder of information on his war record. And the headline on it is adverse report on PLW on um, Percival Lee Wilson. Basically, he was there for one day on the 17th of April 1917. And he kind of disgraced himself in the trenches, so much so that the man in charge of the battalion Uh, immediately wrote to his commander saying this man has little or no knowledge of discipline his his nerves were in a bad state I place no confidence whatever in him either in attack or defense he did not carry out his duties as he'd been instructed um, and he basically wanted to make sure that this man was never put in charge of men of action or under fire and that's exactly what happened so he basically was taken out of there as fast as possible his uh, the field marshal on the 21st of May field marshal Peters wrote to the war office saying this officer is quite unfit to serve in a unit and he he recommended that he be sent home immediately. So very much tail between his legs, not in glories. I mean, in references to him, official references, it says he came home after being injured. But what I was reading that day in that kind of, as I say, very slim folder was just a a man's uh, military career that never happened. And he came back to London, tail between his legs, tried very hard to get back to Ireland because his wife was in Ireland because he had married a Cork Catholic woman, daughter of a solicitor, unusual mixed marriage. And they were happily married and living in Ashburn, as I say, the previous year. But anyway, he, he did get back to Ireland, but they basically tried to find a quiet backwater for him because of his reputation. And he was sent to Gorey, which was a quiet enough place then from 17, 18, 19, then 20, when he didn't live to see the end of 1920. Tell us about the shooting in June of 1920, because because of the Bureau of Military History and the witness statements, there are a number of witnesses, and the witnesses themselves were people who were actually involved in the assassination. Um, Liam Tobin and Frank Thornton come down from Dublin, and the job, however, could have been done just as easily, probably, by the local IRA volunteers who were also involved in the assassination. Yes, I think, I mean, I do I do think that there was definitely more going on here. And I think that the fact that Liam Tobin had that sense that he was going to deal with this man and himself and Frank Thornton, who would have been quite senior at that stage in 1920. So they came down from Dublin and the local reports and from the local activists, um, so Joe McMahon, John Whelan and the driver was Michael Sinnott. 
But their their accounts are very detailed about how they didn't know why it was so important, but that these two fellas came down from Dublin on the train. They stayed around. They stayed a Saturday night, Sunday night, Monday night, trying to finish what they had come down to do, which was to kill this man. But he was hung over on a couple of the mornings, didn't get up and do the normal things of going to collect his newspaper, which is where they were going to ambush him. But on the Tuesday, on the 15th of June, uh, he did collect his newspaper and he did walk back to his house and they had set up, a, a, you know, pretending that the car was having breakdown troubles and they were on the road and they all fired at him. So, uh, you know, in that way that they, they would have all been responsible for his his actual murder. So they left him there. The, one of the, one of the, they're kind of jaunty, some of these tales, unfortunately. And it's like, well, Frank Thornton picked up the newspaper, whistled a tune and they got into the car and they drove away. Now, they completely never got nobody was caught for that murder so it was a, a kind of an extraordinary there's a lot of stories about what happened to the car and how they escaped and they went across country and ended up getting Liam and Frank got back to Dublin safely I suppose and, uh, and then what happened down at, outside of his house was that his wife came out his now widow came out and he died on the road outside their house Tell us then about the life of Mary Lee Wilson after the assassination of her husband well, Marilee Wilson, she was a very interesting woman in, in the sense of after he died, she kind of changed her life in the sense that she left Gory, she came up to Dublin, she um, enrolled as a mature student in the, in medicine. She became one of only three women to qualify as she ended up being a paediatrician. So at the age of 41, she became a consultant at the National Children's Hospital. She lived for the rest of her life. She didn't die until 1971 and she lived in uh, Fitzwilliam Place in Dublin quite a, an a interesting woman and at the beginning when I was researching this um, I thought god I'd really like to know more about her and the fact that obviously she then discovered the Caravaggio but she was in her own right a very interesting person and she became very much more Catholic it seems after his death and she had an extraordinary house full of furniture and uh, she she bred dashund dogs she was a chain smoker she had a very very good close friend in the archbishop of dublin john charles McQuaid, who according to some of the women i spoke to she rented out some of the upstairs rooms to students and and younger women and they said that john charles's car would be there two or three nights a week and he'd be in chatting one of his relations a young cousin of his lived in the house at one stage and um, marie lee wilson Basically, she had friends, also other groups of women coming in to say the rosary. She was involved in the kind of strong Catholic women's group at that point where there's details that I read about how she was against children's playgrounds being mixed in the playgrounds in this in the parks in Dublin. She was very against uh, mixing the genders. Even in hospitals, she was very strongly saying that there must be a boys, a little boys ward and a little girls ward. So she was, yeah, she, she seemed to have been a very, a very strong character. And she then, did, she did two things in terms of, of uh, historically making it so relevant, is that one, she commissioned Harry Clark to design a stained glass window, one of his best windows, and it was in memory of her dead husband, Percival. And it's down in Gory, in the Church of Ireland in Gory, a really stunning picture, or a stained glass window of St. Stephen. And she was, in some ways, there was an ambiguous message on the window because she got made sure that he wrote the words, lay not this sin to their charge. Um, and anyway, that was one bit. She was, she was, she knew Harry Clark. And then the second thing was that she bought a painting, um, one of the many paintings she had, and she bought it at this painting at an auction in Scotland. And the story is well documented. And but it was twenty years after her death. She had she gave it uh, to the Jesuits as a thank you for helping her through her grieving for her dead husband. And um, twenty years after her death, it was discovered to be the taking of Christ by Caravaggio. 
What did she think she had bought in Glasgow at that auction? She was. She thought she had bought a painting by Gerard van Honthurst, who was quite a well-known Dutch painter. Like she didn't think she was buying nothing. She knew it was something nice, good, and she recognised that. And he, like we have other, the National Gallery does have other von Honthurst paintings. So you know, it it was called the Taking of Christ, and whether or not it was attributed as a copy, because obviously there was a the lost Caravaggio was famous even in those days, but. She didn't pay a huge amount for it, but she paid a, a certain amount for it. It was an estate auction that she was at in, in uh, Scotland. Um, and then she hung it in her house for 10 years. Like, you know, there's one of the women who lived upstairs said that there was lots of dark paintings and Heppelworth chairs and these Dachshunds and this woman who chain smoked. And like, it does sound extraordinary. She sounds extraordinary. And then she decided she'd give it as a gift to the Jesuits. And they gave it as a gift to the National Gallery for all of our pleasure. Now, you've talked about your family connection to the to the story through your grandfather, Liam Tobin. Has your family, or has anybody in your family ever made contact with the relatives of Percival Lee Wilson and Mary Lee Wilson? No, in the sense of, I mean, in the research, I wasn't able to find many relatives, but there was a, um, a story. My mum, who is now sadly deceased, was involved with the Parnell Society. She set that up with some friends. And in one of their events, they were in the Gory Church, that Church of Ireland Church, and I think there was a tour being given and there was definitely a story that, that in the group, mum was keeping quite quiet about it because obviously she knows her connection through her dad to the Percival events. Um, but somebody else in the group said that they were a, a, a relative of the Lee Wilsons. So they got to talk to each other in that extraordinary church and shook hands and, you know, just talked about the extraordinary connections through history and I did meet somebody else who runs one of the walking tours who said that a, a relative of Percival Lee Wilson at one stage had identified themselves. So, you know, I mean, I do think that, uh, you know, we talk about history being for uh, written by winners and he wasn't at all by any means a winner. But I do try to remember him and I think it's worth remembering, remembering him in the anniversary of, of his death in June of uh, 1920. Well, it's a fascinating story, Ethna. Thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us on the History Show and sharing that uh, story of Percival and Mary Lee Wilson and illuminating the narrative behind the long-lost Caravaggio painting, The Taking of Christ. That's uh, Ethna Hand there. painting we've just been talking about and that story behind it is obviously an illustration of just how close we are to the violence of the War of Independence period. After the break we'll be hearing about how the conflict is still very much with us when it comes to the munitions that are regularly discovered in Ireland like the revolutionary era grenade that was fished out of the Grand Canal earlier this week. Stay with us. <laughs> 